Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord. This program is dedicated to the memory of Father Harold Cohen, a Jesuit without whom we never would have known anything about Miguel Pro. Most of the world knew very little or nothing about the wholesale persecution of Catholics that was going on in Mexico in 1927. The execution of Father Miguel Pro and the publicizing of that execution was a huge mistake on the part of the Mexican government. It highlighted that persecution of the church. But who was Father Miguel Pro? He was God's clown. He was of the upper class, but he loved to wander down into the mines to be with the workers. He was a natural comic, which would be of great help to him in his unorthodox priestly ministry. One talent Miguel acquired early in life was the ability to capture different expressions in people's faces. At first, he sketched them on paper. They were hysterical. He embellished noses, thick, bushy eyebrows, long chins, funny eyes, buck teeth. Then he went to disguising himself in the same theatrical mask. This ability to disguise himself was to prove crucial in later years. He loved his family very much, especially his two sisters. When they decided to join the convent, Miguel became furious. He blamed it on the Jesuits. They had been the girl's spiritual directors. On the day his sisters left for their new life in Christ, an irate Miguel bolted out into the woods. He was gone for days. His mother went out looking for him. When she found him, she spoke very gently to him. She was concerned about the way her son had reacted to his sisters entering religious life. He couldn't understand either why he had become so angry. He just knew it bothered him terribly. His mother made a suggestion that he go on a religious retreat just for a few days to try to come to terms with what was bothering him. He was not happy with the idea, but he went anyway. No one knows for sure what happened on that retreat. It was like St. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. This young man, a hothead like Paul, impetuous like Paul, came back from this retreat, converted like Paul, his vocation to the priesthood sealed, and most unbelievable of all, he was going to be a Jesuit. On August the 11th, 1911, he entered the Jesuit seminary in Elano. He was 20 years old. He was considered the jester of the seminary, as he had been in his hometown. Anyone who knew him when his name was mentioned smiled at his memory. During the revolution, Miguel's family had to flee from their home. His mother went to Guadalajara while his father went in a different direction. Financially, they had lost everything. Conditions in the country were approaching disaster proportions. Law was virtually non-existent. The military ruled by intimidating landowners, confiscating their possessions, and then shooting them. Miguel spent much of his spare time at the outer edges of the seminary listening to stories from passers-by of how bad things were going in the country. A new wave of persecution was being aimed at the church. War stories of religious being beaten and strung up to die found their way back to the seminary. Shortly after, wholesale persecution of all religious orders went into full force. They abandoned the seminary and fled for their lives. They were given civilian clothing to wear. On the Feast of the Assumption, they left the seminary. The priests and novices went by twos sporadically in different directions to avoid attracting attention. For Miguel, it was a very important chapter of his life. He knew that he had to fool the soldiers and the police. In order to do this, he began to practice his art of elaborate disguise. This was to be a salvation during his active ministry. No one could identify him. He made his way to Guadalajara to meet up with the rest of the community. There he found his mother and his brothers and sisters. They were alive. That was all that mattered. Word came to him that his father was definitely alive and safe, though he didn't know where. 
This time in Guadalajara was a beginning of Miguel's becoming a heroic figure. There was an excitement in playing hide-and-seek with the authorities. He felt the thrill of the challenge to perform his religious functions and at the same time elude the authorities. The more the danger, the more Miguel enjoyed it. Finally, word came by code for Miguel and the other seminarians to leave Guadalajara for Los Gatos in California. There they were to continue their studies. It was a very heartbreaking experience for Miguel at the Guadalajara Railroad Station. His mother and brothers and sisters saw him off. He knew as he bid his mother goodbye, he would never see her again on this earth. He never did. The Jesuits at Los Gatos were extremely hospitable. Though they were filled to capacity, they found room for their 16 Mexican brothers. Language, however, was a major problem. The Americans didn't speak Spanish. The Mexicans couldn't speak English. To make matters worse, Miguel's superiors had not taken into consideration one thing when they planned the escape from Mexico, books written in Spanish that the students could use. The situation in Los Gatos was not working out for the Mexican students. In addition, bad news from home was followed by worse news always leveled at the church. Carranza had written the devastating Constitution of Querétaro in 1917. Religious vows were forbidden. All ecclesiastical property was to belong to the state. Priests could not practice their ministry. They had absolutely no rights at all. Hundreds of priests, a number of bishops and nuns were expelled from the country. 2,000 Catholic schools were closed. It was very doubtful that they would be able to reopen their seminary in Mexico, at least in the foreseeable future. They decided to send the Mexican students to Spain to finish their studies. After all, Spain was the home of the Jesuits, and so the 16 packed up again, made the long trip to Spain. They arrived in Granada in July of that year. Miguel spent five years in Granada, Spain. While he was very sad inside to be so far from his home and family, he maintained a great cheery exterior. In 1921, he was sent to attend theology school in Barcelona. He studied very seriously there until 1924 when he was sent to Einheim, Belgium. It was in Belgium that he was ordained on August 31, 1925. This was a time of intense reflection for Miguel. He focused on what his apostolate would be. He didn't know if he would ever be allowed to return to his beloved Mexico. Things just kept getting worse. But that could not stop him from working for the Lord. During his time in Belgium, he began working with miners. He went down into the mines with them. Not knowing if he would ever get back to Mexico, he wrote his provincial in Mexico asking for permission to work with the miners in Belgium. He didn't want to be a shepherd without a flock. He wanted to dig his heels in and get to work somewhere. The response was long in coming when it came, though it shocked him. He was to return to Mexico. He couldn't believe that was possible considering conditions there. Callas had taken over as president, and the reign of terror for the church was at its worst. All the persecution that had preceded him was like child's play compared to what Callas was determined to do to the church. But Miguel was relieved that it was finally determined. His ministry was in Mexico, and that's where he was going no matter what. Miguel did something before leaving Belgium, which anyone in the world would have thought was rash, but we understand it. He had an urgency to go to Lourdes in the south of France. He begged for the money to go from a friend. He went without food or sleep for two days to get there and back. 
He arrived at Lourdes early in the morning and went directly to the Basilica of the Rosary. He was able to celebrate Mass at 9 a.m. From there, went to the grotto where he stayed on his knees from 10.30 a.m. until he went back to the train station for an afternoon train to Paris. He went to Lourdes for Mother Mary. His own mother had died earlier that year. Was he asking his heavenly mother for courage for the days ahead? We are sure she gave it to him. Miguel sailed for Mexico on the Feast of John the Baptist, June 24, 1926. He was joyful after his time in Lourdes. He was actually anticipating his return to his native land. What happened there with Mary that day that he knelt before her at the grotto? Did she say things that he had to hear in order to give him the strength he would need for the days ahead? His entrance into the country was like something right out of Scripture. It was reminiscent of Peter being released from prison by the angel. When Miguel left the ship, no one asked to see his passport. He wasn't questioned by the health department. His bags were not searched. It was as if he was invisible. He walked right through them. No sooner did he get off the boat than he was brought into the capital, Mexico City. He never left again. What was Miguel Pro coming back to? Wholesale massacre was the order of the day. The aim of these terrorists was to attack the weak. Priests, old people, young boys, girls, and women. They wouldn't defend themselves, or so the thugs thought. The clergy, the young people, the old men and women decided it was time to fight back, and so they did. The bishop closed all the churches in Mexico. There was an uproar from the people against the government. An underground youth group was formed, which became the force behind the people of the country. A boycott was begun in protest against the persecution of the church. People just stopped buying. Banks failed and closed down. Underground printing presses churned out anti-government propaganda. Balloons were sent into the air. Thousands of pamphlets filled with propaganda material attacking the government cascaded to earth. President Caez counted with his iron fist. That was all he knew. He had not an iota of an idea how to put his country back together. So like his predecessors, he ruled with force and piled up as much money as he could in anticipation of the day he would be forced to flee the country. This vast city was to be Padre Miguel Pro's parish. These catacomb Christians were to be his parishioners. Never in two lifetimes could anyone have asked for anything as exciting as the time Miguel had to minister to his hundreds of thousands of parishioners in secret, in constant hiding, running from the police, and he relished it. He began his ministry the day after he arrived in the capital. Every trick he'd ever learned, every disguise was put into use. He began playing cat and mouse with the police. He organized communion stations all over the city. They were houses where the faithful would come to receive the Lord. He never distributed less than 300 communions. On First Friday, the figures would swell to 1,200 and all under the noses of the police. Masses were celebrated all over the city before dawn. There were private homes, different ones all the time, with watchdogs looking out for police, passwords being changed constantly. The rich and the poor gathered together in these small rooms to adore their Lord and receive the nourishment they could only get at the hands of their priests. Those who wanted to confess confess had to arrive at the appointed places earlier than the Mass, 
Sometimes at 5.30 in the morning, it was truly a catacomb church. A crack underground organization had been put into effect. The police tried to smash it. They found out who a given set of leaders might be, arrested them, tortured them, and killed them. They were no sooner arrested than they were replaced by those under them. The movement never slowed down for a minute. Callias bore down harder, hoping this might stop the nightmare which he had caused. Every now and then, the police would find the printing presses. They smashed them to pieces. New printing operations would start up almost immediately, so smoothly, so secretly, none of the spies Callias had employed could keep up with them. Wholesale arrests took place, although Padre Pro was not known by the police, his brother Umberto was. And so one evening, the police arrested Umberto, Miguel, his other brother Roberto, and a host of young men. Miguel was not upset about this until, once out inside the jail, a lieutenant commented, Tomorrow we shall have mass. Miguel could feel a pain of fear run through him. Had they found out? All the young people shouted as one, Mass? The lieutenant answered, Yes, for there is a priest among you. This was a moment of truth for Miguel. He had played over in his mind thousands of scenarios of how his final capture might take place. Somehow it wasn't like what was happening. He, he had to hold up. Dear God, help me, he prayed. Don't let me weaken now. The lieutenant continued, He is a Miguel Augustin. Miguel stood up. His legs were shaking, but he couldn't let his voice crack. crack. Stop, he said. That Miguel Augustin is I. But it is probable that I shall say mass tomorrow as that I shall sleep on a mattress tonight. And what about this? The lieutenant pointed to the name Pro. That only means my surname. It is not the abbreviation of presbítero. In Spanish and Mexican, a priest uses the term P-B-R-O after his name, which means presbítero, or priest. Miguel laughed off the accusation and was able to get out of the prison, but it was too close for comfort. When his superiors heard about this, they ordered him to stay out of sight. Miguel managed to keep himself undercover for two months, but he was itching to get back into action. He wrote a heart-rending plea to his provincial, which could not possibly have been turned down. He put himself right back into the middle of the battlefield. He went into prisons disguised, for they are brimful of Catholics, and laughed at how he got away with it. He walked around with a cane as a cripple, with a police dog, and on a bicycle. His mastery of facial contortions made him the man of many faces. He was playing Russian roulette. While it sounded very romantic and adventurous, and most likely was, there was a price to pay. The police had thousands of spies out looking for information as to who was running these things and who organized them. It was not unusual for a leader to be sold out by what he thought was a good friend and faithful follower. Miguel Pro had become very popular, very famous, at the same time very notorious and infamous. Callias wanted him dead. Warrants were issued for his arrest. They were out to get him. There was, however, a major problem. They didn't know what he looked like. He was always able to slip by the police. His plastic face enabled him to, to disguise himself in so many different ways, and his flair for the theatrical gave him the inclinations to wear the most flamboyant costumes. But Callias was adamant the cat and mouse game intensified. There is a tradition about Padre Pro, 
we're told that it was given in testimony at the process of his beatification. He celebrated Mass every day in secret. On the day before he was arrested for the last time, he was celebrating Mass in a home attended by a small number of people. It is said that during the consecration of the Mass, as he held the consecrated host, a brilliant light surrounded his entire body. His vestments were so bright that people had to turn their heads away. His hands and face were gleaming. He levitated. He was transfigured as our Lord Jesus on the Mount of Tabor before him. We like to think of this as a miracle of the Eucharist of Mexico. A plot had been hatched. We don't know if it was directed against Miguel Pro or the former president Obregón. Some think it was Kanye's way of killing two birds with one stone. Obregón had been motoring in the area of Chapultepec when a car came alongside him and bombs were thrown at his car. He escaped with minor injuries, but his guard chased the four terrorists who had run from their car. The blame was put on Padre Pro, his brother Humberto, and Luis Segura. Miguel and his family knew nothing about the plot. He had moved back into his father's house. When he heard what had happened to Obregón, he was sure it would keep the police occupied for some time and they wouldn't be bothering him. The lady at whose house Miguel had stayed prior to moving back with his father and brothers was arrested. The police were looking for the Jesuit priest. Somehow they managed to trip her up and she told him where Miguel was. Early the next morning, before anyone is up, was up, the police raided Pro's father's house and arrested Miguel, Humberto, and his other brother, Roberto. They were all carted off to jail. They were kept incommunicado for three days. No charges were made and no trial was set. Meanwhile, the head of the prison, General Cruz, issued a statement that all three had confessed to the crime. Miguel had supposedly been one of the organizers of the plot, while Humberto and Segura had been in the car from which the bombs were thrown. But the prisoners knew nothing of any of this. Former President Obergon was conducting his own inquiry. He didn't think the priest or his friends had anything to do with the attempt on his life. He was convinced it was political. But he was getting mixed messages from the investigators. He sent his lawyer to the prison to get to the bottom of it. There was nothing in the way of a police report. And what does the chief of police, General Cruz, think of the guilt of the prisoners, the lawyer asked. The secretary said, the Pro brothers have not confessed any connection to the crime, and we have no proof against them. But the following morning, without benefit of an examining judge or lawyer or anything, sentence on Miguel Pro and his three companions was to be carried out. Keep in mind that none of what was going on was known by Miguel Pro. He thought it was over when the guard came and told him and his brother Umberto to follow him. Miguel bounced up, leaving his vest behind. When the guard sent him back to get his vest, something clicked in Miguel's mind. Possibly a sinking feeling went through him. Was this it? Was it his time to follow in the footsteps of his Savior? To walk his way of the cross? He went back into the cell and put on his vest. His brother Roberto helped him with it. Miguel squeezed his arm in a way that shot fear into Roberto's heart. He looked at his brother. The eyes were knowing. Roberto panicked. Miguel turned to the other prisoners in the cells and with a bravado said, Goodbye, my sons, my brothers. The guard asked Miguel's forgiveness for his part in what was about to happen. 
Not only do I pardon you, but I thank you. I will pray for you. Then he and his brother, without any handcuffs, followed the guard out onto the courtyard. Miguel went out first. The cold, biting air of the November morning sent a chill across his face. His hair blew in the wind. The sun was shining brightly. It was a glorious day. Miguel surveyed the situation in the courtyard. It was as he feared. Soldiers were lined up for a firing squad. All the eyewitnesses, various generals and dignitaries, as well as members of the press, came to attention as they saw for the first time the famous Jesuit who had made such fools of President Callez and his entire police force for so long. Cameras began clicking photos for posterity of this man, who looked more like a student than a conspirator. Miguel walked straight as a ramrod into the center of the courtyard. He asked to pray. He went down on his knees, folded his arms, and closed his eyes. What did Miguel say to the Lord on this, the most important moment in his life? Did he ask for strength and courage to set an example not only for his brothers but for all those who were yet to come? Did he ask for help from his founder, the fearless Ignatius Loyola? Did he speak to Mary? Did he ask her for help to help him now? He needed her so much. He wanted to do this right. He wanted to give glory to his son Jesus and to her. He wanted them to be so proud of him. He wanted all the martyrs before him to look on him with pride. He wanted by this last simple act to make the plight of his countrymen worthwhile. He stood up. He raised his arm to executioners in the form of a blessing. He shouted in a loud, strong voice, May God have mercy on you. May God bless you. Lord, thou knowest that I am innocent. With all my heart, I forgive my enemies. The command was given the soldiers. Prepare. From his breast pocket, Miguel took out a brass crucifix that he was given on the day of his ordination. In his other hand, he held the rosary he had gotten in Lourdes. He held both outstretched at arm's length in the form of the cross. He said in a voice which was not loud but could be heard by everyone in the assembly, Viva Cristo Re! Fire! The sound from the blast of the rifles ricocheted against the walls of the courtyard, shattering the tense silence. Bullets ripped through Miguel's chest, pushing him backward, but he remained standing. Cameras went off like crazy, catching the image of the dead man who wouldn't go down. Finally, he slumped into a heap on the ground. The captain came over to him and shot him in the head to end his torture. Miguel was dead, but not forgotten. The bodies were brought back to Miguel's father's house where they lay that day, November 23rd, and the next. Thousands of people filed by the bodies of the two martyrs. They kissed the caskets, touched the brothers as if touching saints with linen, rosaries, and other objects. Miracles began to descend on the people of Mexico while the bodies were still warm. The caskets were carried down to the hearses at 3.30 p.m. on November 24th for the procession to the cemetery. Masses of people were on hand to follow the hearses through the city. But as the hearses progressed, more and more people followed. They got off streetcars and joined the crowd. 500 automobiles formed walls to block crossing traffic. The crowd processed between the blockade of cars 
and on the busy Paseo de la Reforma, more than 20,000 people marched down the main street of Mexico City, pushing their way past soldiers with fixed bayonets. The streets were carpeted with flowers. Balconies all along the procession route were filled with mourners. Miguel had never witnessed such homage paid a human being. Now he was the center of it. God will have his way. If Miguel Pro and his fellow victims had been judged guilty of the attempted murder of the ex-president Obregón, they would have been put in prison for 8 to 12 years. Most likely they would have died in prison and never be heard from again. But President Callas had to do it his way. He executed Miguel and his companions and photographed the murder. Then he made sure the photos were plastered all over the newspapers all over Mexico as a stern warning to anyone who would dare to disobey the president and his commands. What he managed to do was create a national hero, a martyr, a role model, so strong that the people of Mexico would rally behind the banner of this young Jesuit. There were many, many priests executed under Calle's regime. Why was this one man, Padre Miguel Augustin Pro, singled out as martyr, hero, and saint? But since that time, 25 more priests were also declared with him martyrs, heroes, and saints. They just represent a small quarter of the hundreds of thousands of people who died for their faith. In times of crisis, God sends us saints and other powerful men and women in the church. God gave us Miguel Pro, not only for the Mexican people, but for God-loving people everywhere to give us a battle cry to live by and to die by. Viva Cristo Rey! Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply, with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store Search for Bob and Penny Lord app and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.